This is the Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Reinald with BMZ CEO Peter Evers. It's time for our Ask the CEO podcast, and you can send your questions in at askceo at bamz.org. Peter, good to see you. Chris, how are you doing? I am well. So we have a couple questions this week. The first one is on safety, and it kind of asks a question of how safe are workers at BAMSI from some of the types of events that we have seen across the uh, the country, obviously, with uh, mass casualty shootings taking place. And they were wondering, you know, what protocols are there to keep um, BAMSI employees and persons served safe? Yeah, I think it's a very timely question, Chris. I mean, it is it's, it is a it's a moment in time when we all pause uh, to think about what's going on in our in our culture um, when the the prevalence of uh, gun violence, uh, violence as a whole, is just so pervasive and in our culture that it, no wonder we're all beginning to think about this. And you know, in many ways. Um, I remember when Columbine happened in 1999, um, and the response to that um, was all about what do we do to make our schools more safe, which is absolutely quite right. But it really, if you think about it, uh, that really hasn't slowed down um, the amount of incidents that we've had over the past ensuing 20-something years. Um, so we need to always be thinking about this issue. And you know, we have many policies here. You know about access to workplace, for instance, uh, which really is clear about who and who cannot come on premises. Um, you know, in the workplace, we we had a situation this week that was not around violence or anything, but really we were able to bring up the fact that when you come over the threshold into work, you know, your responsibilities are that, and you have to leave some of those other incidents that might be going on in your life outside of the workplace, so that doesn't affect. Uh, person served or your colleagues. Um, so I think we've been really thoughtful about that. Um, we are not a, uh, a prison <laughs> uh, and we're not um, somewhere that has metal detectors around the doors. And we're always really, really thoughtful about, especially in our residential programs, how, how can we make our residential programs look as much um, like home as they can be? Um, but having said that, our protocols around um, making sure that everybody in the house is accounted for and there's a reason for everybody to be there, uh, I think has so- served us pretty well in the past. And then there are specific issues like our HR department, for instance. We know that there can oftentimes be fairly volatile situations when uh, people are separated from employment. Um, so we do have to take extra special care to make sure that people are around uh, and that people can raise the alarm if there are issues like that. It isn't something that is that uh, is prevalent here at the agency, but it happens uh, enough in terms of sometimes, um, well, the classic one is if uh, an individual is in a domestic violence situation that in the individual's partner who is the abuser may show up at work and again being very clear about your concerns and worries making sure that your supervisor knows that uh, really goes a long way to make sure that we're prepared for any situation like this because we know that people don't necessarily check their problems in at the door at work of course they don't 
And I would, I would obviously take a moment to remind people that we do have um, an EAP program which is available for people, uh, which is free uh, for the first consultation mm-hmm. or two. I would always, always encourage people who are struggling with some of those difficulties to make use of the EAP program. When you look at the uh, number of events that have taken place, and obviously the school shootings kind of jump to the headlines in the news, but there's a lot of these events which take place on a perhaps even day-in, day-out basis across this this country. And um, do you see any connecting factors when it comes to uh, to mental health? And there's that debate over, you know, is it, uh, is it the gun? Is it the person? Um, what is your sense about why we see these types of events uh, on a continual basis? Well, I suppose I would begin, Chris, and I do have an axe to grind about this, so I should probably, I'm not particularly um, uh, agnostic about this, I I would say. But uh, take, for instance, uh, the fact that mental illness occurs in any given population in just about exactly the same manner, like 1% of any particular population uh, struggles with schizophrenia, for instance, and that can be Papua New Guinea, it can be China, it can be America. And the same for serious and persistent mental illness. Around 5% of any given population is going to struggle with a a mental illness that affects their um, livelihood and their level of functioning and their community tenure, if you like, people being out in the community. That's an interesting fact, right? So why is it that Australia, and Australia is a really good example, and we should get back to that, uh, or Canada, I mean, if you look at Hamilton in Canada and Detroit in America and look at um, gun violence, uh, gun deaths, they're separated by a river and <laughs> look it up. I mean, there are basically zero in Hamilton and then, you know, the thousands that you get in, in Detroit. So just to say it's about mental illness to me would be a little misleading. It would also mis- be misleading to say that mental health uh, doesn't or, or a disruption in mental health has nothing to do with gun violence. I think you know we're, people tend to go to extremes, but the point I'd make, I think, is that people with mental illness are not inherently violent human beings. They're human beings that struggle with an illness inside of them, um, which is more painful to them. And in the extreme, and we know this, that people who have serious mental illness take their own lives in, in way, way greater numbers than they take other people's lives. And that's the great tragedy of that. So to think about the stigma of mental illness for a minute and to have a president who, who used to just react and say, well, it's the mentally ill people. A former president also said we should be locking those people up in institutions. And again, it goes directly to the stigma that happens in society about people with mental illness. So it's got to be about something more than that. And it's got to be about our culture. We need to look at our culture. We need to look at how easy is it to own a gun? And are we prepared to put all of our eggs in that basket around the Fifth Amendment uh, at the expense of what's going on uh, in supermarkets, um, in casinos, in schools? Time and time again, we're sort of explaining it away without without looking at the underlying factors of the, the fact that assault rifles uh, and semi-automatic rifles are available to pretty much anybody who wants them. We should be having a good conversation about that. Now, I'm not an expert on this topic, um, but as an individual, 
it seems that if a person makes a determination that um, they're going to use a gun and take the lives of uh, people that they don't know, but they associate with some sort of pain in their lives, and that's what's generally been um, viewed as being the reason for you know mass casualty events in schools where there's a um, you know, teenager or a very young adult who um, perpetrates these acts, and there's a certain M.O., that um, the, 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 there has to be some sort of, you know, the rational side of me, and, and a lot of people says there has to be some sort of mental illness at play there that would um, have somebody commit that type of act. Do you prescribe to that and that there's the other factors in regard to access to gun and perhaps, you know, cultural um, feelings about guns and usage of guns that don't exist in other societies? Like, how do you kind of break it, break it down? Yeah, and that goes back to what I said at the beginning was, you know, to, to say that, um, let's say, a disruption in one's mental health um, has to be uh, involved in, in many of these uh, incidents. Again, I go back to the fact that that happens in other countries and you don't get you don't get mass ca- you literally don't get mass casualty reporting and you know i'm going to say this i'm from britain um i remember a school shooting in 1988 at dunblane in- interesting enough andy murray the uh, the tennis player was actually a, a child a 5 year old uh in that school everybody in my country of my age remembers dunblane dunblane absolutely horrified the country and Immediately, there were restrictions on gun ownership. We talked about Australia a minute ago. Same thing happened two years ago. Mass, a mass casualty killing. Immediate clampdown on wait times, on ownership. You can only own a gun if you belong to a gun club, etc., etc., or, or, or you're a hunter. Um, there is... I know you probably think I'm avoiding your question, but yes, there is a mental dis- uh, mental health disturbance or disruption. But think about all of those influences on those individuals. Think about what uh, those individuals are hearing. They're already isolated. They and every most of them are individuals who have been isolated that probably are listening to social media that is distorting uh, a story. They probably feel isolated and hard done by. And all of these things, these external influences on that individual are affecting that individual's mental health. And in that sense, I would agree with you that an individual is not in their right mind, but they don't necessarily have a major depressive disorder, a bipolar disorder, a, a schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. You can't draw those lines in terms of how we define, by diagnosis, people who have mental illness. So you mentioned uh, nations in which there um, are not these types of uh, mass casualty events at supermarkets, schools, medical facilities, etc. So people still um, have social media in those countries. They still have um, you know, mental health challenges in those countries. Um, how how come in your view that they don't manifest themselves into, you know, violent acts or do people go in other different types of directions? Because the human being is, as you referenced, the same, the human being in one place is the same as the other. So how do, how do human beings in this country get either molded or shaped into a place in which these choices that are made on a con- Continual basis by people in different parts of the country from different backgrounds um, 
make the same choice? I think we live in a very polarizing society to start with. Um, and I guess I'd, uh, it's topical but because the January 6th uh, hearings are happening now. What we saw on that day were people who had been majorly influenced on doing something which more than anything else threatened our democracy. Uh, that has been, in some ways, by some people... Um, and threaten their own personal well-being. They were willing to take chances on their, their life, their livelihood, in order to try to um, do something that they were influenced about, you know, and, and lied to about, basically. Right. Well, and then think about it, because politically, um, there are some news stations who aren't showing the hearings, for instance. There are some news stations who immediately started to uh, support those people in a way that was kind of bizarre if you really believe in democracy. Um, there, the polarization of America has happened in a way that hasn't happened in other countries. Now, polarization may have happened, but not in, the, in this sort of political sense where hate and fear have been pitched, so we're pitched against each other, so that the people who live you know, in Mississippi have a, a very negative view of people who live in Massachusetts, for instance. And that's fostered in a political way because it's a cheap win to make people hate each other. That's how you get people riled up. I have not seen that in other countries, and believe me, other countries have all sorts of other difficulties. But that kind of environment that pits us against each other that makes us feel as if we're losing control of our rights uh, and then access to lethal means. If you put that on top of those beliefs, then you really do have a powder keg. Uh, and we've seen it time and time again. Every, there's manifestos that are written by these people, and they are totally logical to them because they put themselves right in the middle of the, of the, uh, uh, of the situation, and they are the victim. Um, and it's it's a lethal mix at the moment. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before this meeting, at least uh, we're having a conversation uh, in Congress about what can we do uh, across the board with, with uh, gun ownership uh, and making sure people are getting the services that they need and people aren't isolated. Uh, you know, you've got to fight this battle on many, many different fronts. Yeah, we have one more question I want to get to, but you've talked a lot in the past about isolation and how isolation becomes problematic in so many different ways in regard to an individual's uh, mental health. And it can lead to you know, depression. It can lead to a lot of different, uh, different things. How do we solve the problem of isolation, particularly when an individual feels as though you know, society is against them and I can't get along with anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, and you end up talking to perhaps the wrong people. And we've you know, associated isolation at times with drug use or mm -hmm. alcohol use. Um, how do you solve the problem of, of isolation? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to community. I mean, I think, you know, when we, a lot of the work that we do, for instance, in our elder uh, services program, the Dawn Davis program is actually m m intentionally getting out into communities, creating opportunities for people to be together. You know, we're very social animals. Uh, and the reason we don't come be, uh, become social it's because it's sort of beaten out of us in some ways. It's like I'm different. Uh, nobody respects me. Um, nobody is accepting of me. 
Um, you know, and a lot of the schools now are doing this ki- this kindness project that you may have read about, which is actually encouraging kindness in the classroom. And, you know, when I think about my upbringing, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not a kind place school. Yeah. Um, and that's where it starts, this idea of it's okay to be kind. It's okay to ask somebody how they're doing. Um, and it also, you know, not to go off on a different tangent here, but when you as a teacher or a coach or an adult or an authority figure – you know, set the tone that the only way in order to get people to do what you want is to, you know, exact authority and to um, be bossy and mean and all of that stuff. You know, it kind of sets the, the wrong tone in how you achieve results. You, you get results by yelling or being louder than the other person um, or being tougher than the other person and the, the choose love movement, which I think is what you're referring to, yeah. um, it was started by uh, Jesse Lewis. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, started by um, Scarlett Lewis, who lost her son Jesse in the uh, Newtown tragedy at Sandy Hook, and it's a uh, focus on social emotional learning mm-hmm. within the school and um, creating, trying to create an environment in which students build each other up and support each other, as opposed to uh, and embrace differences, as opposed to um, looking at kids and being intimidated by the differences and excluding people um, because of those differences. Yeah, I mean, that's where it begins. Um, and it also sort of how do you break up these echo chambers that exist, you know, with people because they do, folks who do feel that sense of isolation seek out other people who feel like right. that. And then it becomes more and more obvious to them that this is the action that they have to take. Breaking uh, breaking that string, I think, is really important so that you're, you're spending time in class. I mean, you know, I think, you know, you and I are of different generations, but, you know, if you were odd in school when I was, when I was at school, you, it was a really difficult time for you. The teachers would have no time for those folks. It was like, well, they don't do sport or they, you know, they don't learn the same way. We've come a long way, but we've still got a lot of work to do to be more inclusive in the classroom and in our society, I think. And very often the most, you know, creative folks and, um, talented and smart folks get excluded as well and it becomes a um society uh, a a school and society that focuses a lot of times on mediocrity and doesn't help those at the bottom to um to have success and figure out you know bottom in terms of um socioeconomics and all that uh, to have success and it also kind of tries to keep the people at the top down in this kind of homogenous type of uh, sense. Um, the final question today is in regard to COVID. And um, the question is asked about whether uh, co- things are getting better with COVID here at BAMSI. <laughs> yes, I mean, they are. And, you know, last it's a really great question, actually, because last Friday night with uh, – absolutely no notice at all. The state lifted uh, the requirement in our residential programs uh, for masks to be worn. Um, And actually what it did was it gave the organizations the ability to make a decision about whether they were going to uh, enforce masks. Um, That is a sign really that we've um, we've done well that we at, in our, in Massachusetts anyway. Although we're still getting um, emergency operating procedures because of positive uh, individuals with positive uh, results from our surveillance testing, but at the same time, those people are out a few days and then they're coming back. They're not seriously um, uh, ill from from COVID uh, for the most part. 
So we're doing well. We are actually lifting that mandate. Uh, unless people are unvaccinated, they will have to still wear a mask in the programs. In our day hab programs, for instance, they will have to wear masks because that's what the state's doing us, do, uh, telling us to do. So it's all over the map. But I think, yes, sporadically we're getting uh, positives in our programs. We're dealing with it really well. People aren't being out for so long. I do think we've I think we have um we've come a long way but you know already we're talking about a different strain and you know as we approach um the winter months uh, I think we just still need to be on our guard about this um and I, I'll say I think Bamsi did exactly the right thing by deciding that we had to go with a vaccination mandate uh, mandate uh, and we have a very small percentage of people you know, who uh, for uh, got exceptions, that's fine. I think we're in a good place, Chris. Peter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Chris. That is Peter Evers, CEO of Bamsey. Again, you can ask a question on the next month's edition of the podcast by uh, go, or sending an email to askceo at bamsey.org.